Let's pray. Let's commit our time in the Word to the Lord. Father, thank you so much for your love and care for us, Um, even in the the text before us. We can see uh, an earnest plea that you make through the Apostle Peter and your, your love for us, that we are to stand vigilant and to be on guard against those who would try to deceive us. Lord, help us to love the truth, to love you, to love one another, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. May this be an encouraging time to your flock, Lord. May we be nourished on the pure milk of the word. Help us, Lord, to grow in this true grace in which we stand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles. We're going to continue in our study in the book of 2 Peter. Book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. I'll start from verse 4 so we get the context, and I will read through verse 16. So please follow along. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 16. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. As they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery, that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. We're in a pretty pivotal part in the book of Second Peter, especially we come to our text this morning. Uh, chapter 2 really is uh, chronicling the rise and fall, the rise and fall of false prophets. And as we've been uh, kind of moving at a, at a more rapid pace through this chapter, we've seen a couple important things as we try to break down this chapter. First of all, uh, in the opening three verses, there is a general a description of these false teachers, the very things that, that characterize them in addition to the consequences, the fallout of their presence within the church. And then as we read through verse 4, and this was our text last Lord's Day, we went from verses 4 all the way through 9, and we titled that message, Posers, of course, this is about the fakers, right? Those who are trying to pretend that they are those who love the flock of God, they are would-be teachers, and by some kind of perverse wisdom, they are able to weasel their way into positions of authority within the household of God and deceive Christians, especially among those the immature. So we simply call them posers. They are fakers. They are wannabes. Of course, it's not, it's not very difficult to make a, a, uh, a modern correlation to that. We see that all over society, especially those in leadership to the point where we should be automatically suspicious of those who bring in some supposed good word, some message of hope. And of course, these false teachers in view, 
bring forth a false gospel and therefore a false hope that will mislead many. So the first part was called of doom and deliverance, verses 4 through 9. Important because it tells us two things. Of course, the inevitable doom and judgment upon these false teachers, especially in the context of the first century and the impending judgment upon the entire old order, which found its capital really in apostate Jerusalem, filled with every kind of perverse false teaching. But we also find that it's not merely doom on Peter's mind. There is deliverance for the godly. There is deliverance for those whom God has called to himself. And we find that we put these together because God, I think more often than not, delivers his people through judging his enemies. And in the immediate sense, as we covered last week, there was deliverance. There was a path of escape for those who trusted in Christ. Remember, in the immediate historical sense, they had a way out of Jerusalem before it was destroyed. And we find that in bringing down that entire order, much of this Judaizing, of, uh, this Judaizing affliction over the early church was squelched because as the city fell, the very basis of their entire false system of teaching came to a sudden and ruinous end. So in that sense, he delivers his church as well. And one thing I, I did forget, I think, to highlight that I want to bring to the forefront is that this is an ongoing work of God, this work of deliverance. How does he continue to deliver us from false teaching, from go- false gospels? It's one word, the truth, right? The truth of the gospel, the truth of scripture. The truth continues to be living and active. It continues to penetrate the hearts and minds of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it continues to do its work in perfecting and maturing the saints of God. So remember that. We still see this work continue to grow in the life of the church today. That is why it is so essential that the truth remains central to the ministry of the body of Christ. Again, teachers and preachers will come and go, but the truth remains. I mean, I I think about this often. You know, getting used to the idea that, yes, No matter what I teach and preach, one day I'm going to die and people are going to forget Jonathan Goodman ever lived. So be it as long as the truth remains, right? Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. As long as the gospel remains, as long as people remember the word of truth and continue to pass it on faithfully to the next generation. That is what we are called to do as teachers. It's not about people remembering us, it's that they remember Christ. And so we stand here today proclaiming his name. So that's really the sum and substance of the first part. Secondly, and this is a mouthful, Poser's part two of character, conduct, consequence, and correction. And that is simply a, a pattern that I believe exists in verses 10 through 16 at least. And it's, and it's, in, it's not an exact pattern that we can sit and just in, in blocks outline it perfect, perfectly. However, we do see these threads together within this passage. We do see the conduct of false teachers, of these posers, the things they do. We see their character, who they are on the inside. What, what, what is their heart like? Right? What is their internal attitude and disposition toward things heavenly and towards things earthly? All of these things are evident in this passage. And of course, we have consequences. You read down in the chapter, false teachers are likened to animals, unreasoning beasts. There's consequences to their teaching. Their deceit will not go unchecked and it will not go unpunished. And then, of course, the correction. Well, where's the correction? It's kind of a soft word to use in light of the judgment that's coming on them. But we find the correction way down at the end concerning the way of Balaam. He received a rebuke for his own transgression by word of a donkey, of the angel of the Lord speaking through a donkey and, of course, restraining the madness of a mad prophet. So all these things are in view. And so we'll just move through the passage verse by verse and continue our investigation of these false teachers. So in this list of all these things, I think at least three things are brought out. I think the first is this, in the whole picture. On one hand, we are able to see, via the description of Peter, that 
he is able to clearly justify why these false teachers are being judged. There will be agreement among the people of God. I truly believe that, that God is giving a just measure of judgment against these false teachers. And so, of course, Peter is not PC. He is not nice. He describes these teachers as exactly what they are. And we will be able to come to the conclusion that, yes, God be praised for his just judgment of them. Leaves no question in our mind, no second guessing as to this due penalty. Secondly, these are characteristics that godly church leaders and members, by extension, are to look out for. The church herself must be on guard against these things, against allowing these characteristics to develop, to, to, to gain ground or seize ground within the church. Because it does stand to reason that if false teachers with these kind of character qualities or lack thereof are given significant quarter within the church, especially over time, right? They start out small, then their influence grows. We'll find that the church, as is common, the church becomes like their teacher. The church will reflect the doctrine that they are being taught and will come to emulate the characteristics of the teacher that is leading them astray. And note that this is not something, church, that we desire to do in fear. Peter doesn't tell us this so that we tremble with fear, so that we are afraid of false teachers. We respond to these things with measured wisdom. We also want to say that these warnings are not designed to make us all inquisitors against one another, in the sense that we're always suspicious against one another as well as against church leadership. We're not called to be heresy hunters always suspecting the worst out of what is being taught or reading into things that are not there, suspicious toward one another about who the next person is that's going to undermine you or stab you in the back. I mean, if we all did that, we would be a pretty useless church. Really would suck the meaning in life out of why it is that we even gather together. Also remember... Via the word of Paul, we are not to receive an accusation against an elder except on account of two or three witnesses. So there are checks and balances there, of course. What Peter is describing here, I would remind you, are clear patterns of unrighteous behavior. These are not little uh, occasional mess-ups, right? These are patterns of behavior. These are things that are characteristic of the life of false teachers. As we've said before, none of us in here, including your elders, are perfect people. We, we have the things that we wrestle with. Right? We, have, we have sins that tempt us. We have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit as much as every other church member to walk in victory. But this is describing here a lifestyle, an aberrant lifestyle that really arrays itself against the work of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, and this goes back to the very fundamental theme of 1 Peter, which is growing in the true grace of God. This is, this is hard to fake. Life and growth in the Holy Spirit is extremely hard to fake. You may be able to pretend for a little while, but eventually, eventually, you will falter. Eventually, that rot will take over. As others are growing around you, you will begin to wilt. You will begin to wither. You can only pretend for so long. The true saint, on the other hand, and the true teacher will continue to shed corruption and cling to Christ. See, the poser will succumb to the own corruption that is still within him, that is not being rooted out, that is not being fought against in the power of the Holy Spirit. This person will eventually come to despise the Lord Jesus. It may take a while, but it is an inevitability. Here's the third thing. Within this, I don't want us to just make this mental checklist of, of what denotes or what is descriptive of a false teacher. There is a particular response, as we've already covered. But in greater depth, I would say this. When we, when we see what is described of false teachers, I would also desire each and every one of us in here this morning to, cle- to see clearly the grace of our Savior. When we see the, the madness that exists, 
within false teachers, I would hope that we would cling all the more tightly to Christ. This is a call not only to stand against false teachers, but it is a call to rest, to refresh ourselves anew at all the grace and provision that resides in Christ. We were reminded in the hymn this morning, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Even as a response to false teaching and false teachers, that would be the desire for this body. That by His all-sufficient merit, we would be raised to God's glorious throne. To continue to fellowship, to rest in Him, to find comfort, solace, and truth that helps us resist the lies of the enemy. So let's begin examining this text. And we kind of left off at an odd place. Uh, many, many a commentator has said, look at verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. That belongs more with uh, verse 9 because it is talking about judgment than it does uh, verse 10b, as it were. Um, for one, we ran out of time last week, but also uh, verse 10, even though it is connected to the day of judgment, it is a description of the character of false teachers, so um, even of false believers. So it's a win-win situation. We just happen to begin here today. So let's start our study and look at this text in a more careful manner. So uh, reading from verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from temptation. We say amen to that. He does it. He's faithful. And to keep the unrighteous under judgment for the day are under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So there is, seems to be a, a special intense judgment for which they are marked because of these particular characteristics. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires, that's the first thing, and they despise authority. So let's look at this first one. Those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires. So we think typically indulge in the flesh, right? They, they do what brings pleasure to their body. And of course, that is very true. That is very true. There is, a, there is this sort of denouncement of things heavenly or of things spiritual in favor of simply fulfilling the, the perverse desires they have in their flesh. But they use their members, their earthly members, as instruments of unrighteousness. But that pleasure, that personal selfish fulfillment is all that really matters. All that matters. But I think there's more to it than this. Remember when we talk about, we've been talking a lot about this old order in which, of course, this perverse view of the old covenant is in view, is a part of. But we've talked about the fact that when Christ returns in judgment, upon Jerusalem, it is really a, a judgment, a presence of judgment in which this whole old system is coming down, in which the old creation, this process of doing away with the entire old creation has officially commenced. We're living in the midst of that today as the gospel, the good news of the new covenant in Christ continues to be preached. We've established that, that the new, gradually over-redemptive history over this side of the cross is gradually taking its place. That through the gospel, Jesus himself is making all things new. So that's, the, that's, a, that's a good way to understand it. So it's more than fulfilling the passions of the body. The, the flesh, we find, is a disposition it's an attitude. It is that which is characteristic of the old, and it is that which these false teachers are actually imposing upon the body of Christ. So the flesh is described in many ways. Consider what John says in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Right? This, this lust that is in view is not characteristic of the new creation. It is characteristic of the old, the one that is passing away. And the one who is committed to that will pass away with the old, will be destroyed. That is why John goes on to say, this world is passing away and its lust, but he who does the will of God abides forever. That's why John warns his people, 
do not love the world or anything in the world. It doesn't mean don't love your relationships, you know, the people in your life. No, he's describing this old system that is passing away. That as Jesus Christ reconciles all things to himself, there are still those things which will be destroyed. In a manner of speaking, they are unreconciled. They are things which Christ has resolved through the preaching of his gospel and the advancement of his kingdom to put away once and for all. And these lusts that John lays out are those things that are characteristic of the world. Here's another way of understanding it. The flesh is everything we are apart from Christ. See, the flesh is our, our unredeemed humanity. It's, it is what we are or who we are in Adam. Again, it is all that is characteristic of the passing old order. Listen to what Paul says. There is a way that he describes this to help us better understand what the flesh is. In Philippians 3, 2 through 6, he writes this, and it's actually pertinent to the context of 2 Peter. Listen. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. So we have the Judaizers at work again. For we are the true circumcision, right? Those who have undergone a circumcision of the heart and not of the flesh. See, there was something inherently fleshly about this Judaizing influence because the Judaizers came in and insisted that Gentile converts be circumcised. So in that sense, it was a fleshly old relig- fleshly religion, a fleshly way of life, part of the old order doomed to be destroyed. Let's continue. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although... I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Now, listen to what Paul says. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So this is more of an Paul describing what he was in his humanist. This is, this is a sufficiency that he claimed apart from Christ. This is what he claimed of himself before that fateful day on the road to Damascus. But this is what the flesh is. It arrays itself against the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is completely fleshly. It is completely worldly. It is of the old order. And of course... Though the purveyors of this old order, the insistence that these, these various laws that have been put away must be kept, Paul says very clearly in Galatians 5 that they do not bring forth a genuine righteousness. They do not bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. There is, it's just bad fruit, if you can even call it fruit. Paul simply calls them deeds in Galatians 5. So this is the result, mind you, of self-righteousness. This is the result of legalism. This is the result of this Judaizing influence. We would think, well, it would bring forth something good. Paul says quite the opposite. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. You notice a a pattern here that's already happening. The very same things that Peter is, very same words that Peter is using to describe these false teachers, right? They're in uh, various churches already, especially throughout Asia Minor. Okay, he he goes on, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Are you talking about really all this this fleshly effort to keep the law is going to cause division? I thought this was supposed to unify us. Not at all. Anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you see the obvious conflict here. And it is disastrous to any church that invites this in. Let's look at verse 10 again. These who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. This this corruption is evident. It actually harkens back to this corrupt worship that characterized apostate Judah. In Jeremiah 32, we read this, starting at verse 32. It's an important passage, so mark this one down. Jeremiah 32, 32. 
because of the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned their back on me and not their face, though I taught them, teaching again and again, they would not listen to accept discipline. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. So the same word is used here as in this is in verse 10, speaking of these corrupt desires. It's this word miasma. So this defiling, this corruption is the same word used here in the Septuagint. There is a corruption in their worship, a corruption in the house of God. Isn't it amazing this visual in verse 33? They have turned their back to me and not their face. It makes you wonder, is that really what's going on? They're facing God, but they're kind of doing this. I'm not going to try to duplicate that pose up here, but it seems ridiculous that they may face God. They may listen to his law, but their back is turned toward him. Their deeds are not consistent with their creed. And so false teachers do the same thing. They may come in, they may face you, they may pretend to face God and to delight in His Word, to delight in His Son, and yet the whole time their backs are turned toward Him and toward you. Their hearts are far from Him. So of course we have to see the conflict there, the inconsistency, as well as the danger. These false teachers, no doubt composed of Judaizers and perhaps others, are infiltrating the church in order to preserve and even undermine the new covenant administration founded by Christ. That's what, this is what helps us understand why Peter's words are so sharp. Christ is bringing in the new order, right? Under Christ, the federal head of the new covenant, the founder of the new humanity, the gospel is invading the old, destroying strongholds, bringing both salvation and judgment to the nations. This signifies the ultimate betrayal. To hold on tightly to this old order, this old humanity that is passing away and telling others to try to preserve it. What Christ is, by His own hand, putting down and seeks to put away. And these false teachers are coming in and saying, no, this must, this must be preserved. We need to keep this to the point where it's even exalted over the gospel and blurs it. To grant you an illustration, imagine Frodo walking into Mordor and handing the ring of power to Sauron, and you understand the depth of the betrayal, right? Or if Sauron just did the opposite, he just was able to waltz into the Shire, and Frodo handed him the ring. I mean, what a betrayal that is! But this is sort of the same thing in view. What a betrayal of the Master. What a betrayal of His beloved church. It is so counter to how the church is supposed to live, even its leaders. Listen to how Romans 8 describes us. We are those, again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and speaking of believers in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right? We are in the age, as it were, of the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. See, this is why the warning is so dire. It leads to death, not somewhere in between life and death, but just death and judgment. But, he says, the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. What's all this corruption? What are all these perverse desires that are gaining quarter inside the church. So, of course, Peter continues now to describe these false teachers in particular. And those who sit under false teachers for some time end up becoming like them. So not only be on guard against these things from those who claim to speak for God, but also from these things in general. Right? We want to set guards in our own hearts so that these so, do we, so we never think that these things are righteous or acceptable in the sight of God. So here's another thing. These same people, these same teachers also despise authority. This means, this word despise is to think against. So, that, so these are dealing with internal attitudes. These teachers, though they claim to be godly, though they may look godly initially, are rebels at heart. 
These are rebels who desire themselves to be in charge. Typically, you will find that those that despise authority are the ones who wish that they were running the place. I'll come in here, you know that. Set this house in order. Boy, this place really needs the blessing of my leadership and wisdom. That's, that's the attitude. They despise authority. Boy, if they were in charge, the things would be different. Things would be good, they reason. This is usually where cults come from. People who want to lead, but they can never seem to find, find a home church. They can never settle in among the saints. There's always this conflict within. There's always a problem that they have with the church and with the leadership of the church. And so they even use the Word of God to initially gain influence amongst the body, but in his heart, this man secretly rages against that authority. This authority in view, I believe, is most likely the authority of Christ. We read in the opening verse of this chapter that they deny the Master who bought them. Christ has ownership over them, and they rage against that authority. They despise that authority. I think that's the best way to, to understand it. And then Peter goes on. He says, I mean, there's so many words to describe. It's almost, it, it, it's a benefit to us to go through them one by one, but we don't want to be overwhelmed by it. But these are the things, but, but he's, he's, he's uh, pulling no punches here, so ni- neither should we. But the first thing is that they are daring, right? Oh, they're daring. Oh, we love a daring man, right? Someone who takes risks, takes chances. You know, there's a, there is a kind of daring that is noble. You know, one of moral courage, bravery, those who do not waver in their faith, those who are willing to stand against, you know, principalities and powers, who stand for the truth regardless of the consequences. Totally not what Peter has in view here, by the way. This kind of daring is of the ignoble kind. A kind of daring which sees how far it can go in exploiting the church. To borrow from Schreiner, their confidence is not tempered with wisdom and humility. The, the man who is truly confident in a godly way has their confidence, their courage, combined with a sweet wisdom and humility, a, a reliance upon God, a, a, again, a lowliness of mind that rather than coming into the church and seeking to exalt themselves to some kind of position of, of leadership and influence, wants to know how he can serve others wants to know how he can love his brother and sister in Christ. And there is a wisdom also, a way, a way of looking at reality, a way of looking at the truth that enables him to pursue what is best in life and, and enables him to help others pursue what is best in life. But the false teacher doesn't do that. He is daring, right? As if to say, Guy has a lot of this guy has a lot of guts. He has a lot of gumption that he would come in here and try to throw his weight around like this. But they do. He's also self-willed. Self-willed. This is a man who does whatever he wants to do, right? Self-willed. Think of the, the words of Alistair Crowley. Do what thou wilt, for that is the whole of the law. Founder of the hippie movement. But this is the kind of self-willed man. But I think there's more to it than this. What flows out of this self-willed nature? We find that the self-willed man is ultimately one who is stubborn and arrogant. Right? He brags. He's an opportunist. He does what he can. He says what is necessary to exalt himself among the church. The problem is, too, he's impervious to correction. He doesn't want to hear. He doesn't want to hear the voice of the peasants, of those who are unlearned of those who have not been to divinity school, of those who don't know their Bible like he knows their Bible. This is the self-willed man. He always de- demands his own way, right? But what do we know about love, right? Love does not seek its own. So, the, so the, the, the teacher in the church will love his people. He will not seek his own way. He will not demand that everything is done the way he desires it. This is a person who doesn't care what anyone says to him, who doesn't listen. Here's a man who acts like a child and throws a temper tantrum whenever he doesn't get his own way. Listen to what Jude 1 says. Now, just, just so you know, much of what we're going through is paralleled in Jude, as if these churches are going through the exact same thing. Right? So Jude 1, verse 16, these are grumblers, 
grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. So notice that, notice that partnership there. They follow after their own desires, but in doing so, they're also grumblers, right? They complain. They're always finding fault. You would say, for the purpose of fulfilling and following their own lust. They speak arrogantly. Listen to this. Flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. They're full of it. They're only telling you what you want to hear, right? We, 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 read in, we read from the Apostle Paul about the tickling of ears, right? finding doctrines to suit their own desires. Titus 1 gives us some wisdom on this as well regarding qualifications for an overseer. He is to be above reproach as God's steward. Listen to this. Not self-willed. If he's going to be a servant of God, the first thing that comes up, he's not self-willed. Same word. Not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, why would Paul say that the servant must not be like this? Because there were already elders in the church who were exactly like that, who were self-willed and quick-tempered and drunkards and contentious, taking advantage of people. That's why the warnings are so serious. Now, moving on. This is a pretty curious part of this passage, probably the most difficult part of it. But what does Peter say? He says, daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesty. So you could say that part of this daring and this self-willed nature is in connection to this lack of trembling when they revile angelic majesties. This is a way in which their despising even of authority is expressed. So, there were a lot of very interesting interpretations of this text that were offered by an innumerable amount of commentators. So, rather than going over, going over them, I will present to you the one which I think is the best defended. Most of them were defended pretty well, but I think this is the best one. Um, in this verse, I think it's best to say that when it comes to reviling angelic ma- majesties, this word revile here is the word for blasphemy. So angelic majesties, I think, could be best understood as angels. Yes, heavenly angels. This word majesties is the Greek word doxa, which simply points to glories. So what's in view here are angelic glories. I think that's the best way to understand it. It's difficult because sometimes this word for angels can refer to messengers, but I think in light of what the book of Jude says regarding the archangel Michael's um, encounter with, with the devil, there are angelic majesties in view. So if you go to Jude really quickly in verse 8, it says this, yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and they reject authority. See what's going on here, the parallel in Second Peter. They reject authority and revile angelic majesties. So just after this, what's brought up? an angelic majesty. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, There we have it. The Lord rebuke you. And we would think that though Michael perhaps had the prerogative to do such a thing, even, even when the devil is in the picture, he did not do it. So what is going on here is that these false teachers revile, they blaspheme against angelic majesties, and they do not tremble. Right? It says, whereas angels who are greater in might and power. Right? So even knowing this, that perhaps this angelic glory could smite them, are way more powerful than they a mere man. They, there is no fear when it comes to speaking against, speaking against angels. And I think as we explore the context a little more, we'll find out why this is why, why this is brought up. The Bible has quite a bit to say about angels, but I think the most significant part of this is the fact that against the background of this looming judgment upon the Judaizers, Jerusalem, and their whole old system is, is an understanding and then a denial of how angels actually carry out and execute the judgment of God. 
And so, what's, so when we understand that from the text of the New Testament, you, what they're doing essentially is denying that that's ever going to happen. There is no fear, there's no humility, there's no godly sorrow. Oh, as if to say, the, the angels of God are going to do what? Bring it on. It's not going to happen. I mean, that's fundamental to their entire teaching, is denying that this judgment is ever going to happen, is denying that this old order is ever going to be put away by the gospel. And so if angels have a hand in executing the will of God in that judgment, part of this reviling is to, is to stand and say, no, this is not going to happen. These angels aren't going to do anything. And so they speak a word against them, mighty though they are. We find that these glories, these angelic glories, are, uh, again, instrumental in, in executing the word of God, and much, much good is said of them. Listen to Psalm 103.20. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. And Psalm 104.4, repeated in the book of Hebrews, He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. In Psalm 91.11, talking about angels giving, giving the Lord giving His, his angels charge, right, for the for the purpose of protection. He says, for He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. In Hebrews 1.14, we read this, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now again, we have this word messenger, right? But context dictates whether or not these are human messengers, preachers, or actually heavenly beings. We would say their use of glory here, angelic glories, and the presence of Michael the archangel and the devil and Jude lends itself for us to say these are actually angelic beings. Um, so we've read already Jude 1, 8, and 9. But we also see this. Here is where their execution of the will of God comes in. You read the apocalyptic uh, passages from the New Testament. It's all over the place. In Matthew 13, we read this, verses, beginning at verses 39. So it, it is talking about the wheat field with tares. Now, there's, whether you take that as the judgment in AD 70 or the judgment at the end of the age, the point is still made. And the enemy who sowed them, these tares, is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Looking forward to that judgment. In Matthew sixteen twenty seven, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and will then repay every person according to His deeds. This again, judgment is in view here. But who's present with Him? His mighty angels. In Matthew 24, 31, we read this, And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet blast, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And I hope that you will go through, through these yourself and sort of use wisdom to, to come to your own conclusions. In Matthew 25, 31, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. I think this is a, there's a good case that this is the vindication of the Son of Man. He takes His throne next to the Father, and in His parousia, His presence, He executes judgment and salvation to all the nations. Further, Paul speaks to this in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. He's talking about the persecuted church, most likely a, a crowd similar to the one in view in 2 Peter. So in 2 Thessalonians 1.7, he speaks of this. He says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. I have a feeling that they're all talking about the same event. There's this judgment where the Lord returns, but He is present with His angels, and His angels assist Him in the execution of that judgment. Listen to Revelation. Revelation is pretty telling. Revelation 7.2 and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, holding the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So God sends his angels forth to, to affect nature. Again, this is an apocalyptic vision, most likely describing the destruction and judgment over this old order. And of course, the rise of the new covenant order and the new humanity in Jesus Christ. Revelation 8 uh, I think 8, 2, and 13. 
And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. That's verse 2. The fourth angel sounded, verse 12, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened, and and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. So there's a lot of angelic activity right here that pertains to Christ's judgment. And they are here, and they are active. In verse 13, same chapter, Then I looked and I heard an angel flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. One more, Revelation 9.15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Woe! <laughs> now they're killing people. Who are these angels? Who are these messengers? Again, points to these heavenly beings. I think that's the best case that could, could be made. But of course, you have these teachers who are shooting their mouths off, saying that these things can never happen. See, I think in the bigger picture, they have no view of the heavenly realities of what is happening, right? Um, it points to something of their nature. But these men are men of the earth, right? So whether these angels are earthly or heavenly, there is no reverence for that which is beyond him that excels the teacher in both power and wisdom. In the words of Barclay, this man has forgotten that there is a heaven and is blind and deaf when the sights and sounds of heaven break through to him. See, that is what makes false teachers so dangerous, church, is that this is what they end up doing, is making the church, at least for a time, blind and deaf to the sights and sounds of heaven, right? But this is, this is one of the many places where the sights and sound of heaven should break through to you, where we are presenting what God says, not our mere imagination, not doc- strange doctrines, cleverly devised tales as Peter describes. This is where heaven is to break through by the proclamation of God's Word. One of many places. And so, of course... In doing this, these false teachers are thereby pro- they're claiming to have power over the very beings they revile, as if to say, these things will do nothing to me. And of course, they are rebuked here for their pride. In fact, they are described as not like men, but like, verse 12, unreasoning animals. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. Wow. Will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed? See, there's unreasoning animals. These animals are as if they are rabid or feral. They have no master. See, we, today we, we have our dogs. We have, we have domesticated many animals like horses, especially dogs being the most common ones. Cats still do whatever they, they want to do. But, but domestic animals, you think, of, you think of dogs. I mean, my dog is getting up there in years, but he still recognizes me. When I come home, he simply runs faster than my family, and he's the first, he's the first one to greet me. Right? And the dog has cataracts. The hound is going blind, but he still knows his master. He knows his voice. He can still smell me when I walk through the door. He may bark at me at first because he can't see me very well, but he knows, he knows me. And I continue to let him live in my house. Right? But he has been domesticated. He has been trained, in a sense, to respond to me in a particular way. It is the opposite with these false teachers. They do not reason, right? They are like the horse and mule which have no understanding. We read that this morning. They do not reason. They do not think things through. They do not subject their mind to the Word of Christ. They do not obey His law. They do not glorify His name. They are born as creatures of instinct. See, this is, with all this, this sensuality in view, it's simply instinct. See, it's very true. It's, it's, it's a very tragic irony that when anyone tries to exalt themselves to godlike status, they end up going lower. They end up ironically becoming like animals. When a man tries to be like God, he ends up becoming a beast. 
He is put down in that sense. Creatures of instinct to be captured and killed as if they're only there for the hunt. They serve no purpose other than to be a warning to others in the judgment that they will undergo. It says this, reviling where they have no knowledge. There's that, there's that word again, reviling. These insults, these blasphemies, where they have no knowledge. If you want to turn very quickly with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I think we get a, a more in-depth description of this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says this of these teachers. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things... Again, what do unreasoning animals do? They stray. They have no direction. They, they, they assign themselves no master. Straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law. See, there's that desire for exaltation, for position. Even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertion. Again, it's all hot air. It's just, it's words. They want to come in and be teachers of the law, but they don't even understand the point of the law. Right? I think this is what hap- it continues to happen today. What ultimately is the purpose of the law? To point us to the Savior. To point us to Christ and how He fulfills all of it. And I think that's the big thing these false teachers are missing. They're not reading the law and saying, how does this point us to the glory of Jesus Christ? How does He fulfill it? Right? How does, how does Christ again, grant us all of that extra light through which we see what Scripture means? No, they pervert it. They don't understand it, but boy, they often end up being the biggest talkers, the most confident teachers, and they are completely clueless as to what the Scripture is actually teaching. They're not reasoning. They're not thinking it through. They're just getting up there and talking because they love the attention. They love being leaders, and they love to see, as time goes on, how they can take advantage against God's beloved church. See, they revile, they blaspheme, but they have no knowledge. They don't know what they're talking about. And Peter, remember, puts a heavy premium on knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you're not going to do that being under a teacher who has no idea what he's talking about. And yet, here they are where they have no knowledge, and of course, he says, will in the destructions, the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Like the rabid feral creatures, they illustrate their destiny will be the same. They will be put down. That is their only recourse. There is, and in some sense, they are already too far gone. There is no renewing them to repentance. Their only recourse is to be put down and being an example of a warning toward others who will follow the same errant teaching and example, even though these teachers believe themselves to be of high esteem, right? And we know this, whether in the church or without, it is common for those who attack the gospel, who cling to the old order, who cling to the old creation, and and attack the lordship of Christ to claim the intellectual high ground to such a point that in certain circles, what we say and what we preach is dismissed outright. It's amazing that the new creation that is contained in the gospel is dismissed as old. What we're saying is new. I mean, sure, we, we, we of course, go back to the old scriptures. There is, there is an oldness to it. But as it has been fulfilled in Christ, this message of, of the gospel is what advances the new creation. And yet, it is those who, people who dismiss it outright, we should not look up to as, as being intellectually superior. I think they dismiss it because they really have no response. They don't know what they're talking about. And people who don't know what they're talking about say as little as possible when their claims are, are finally questioned. When what they say is absolute truth, even though in the same breath they'll deny there's any such thing as objective truth, as soon as what they say is brought, brought into the light, as, as soon as it is exposed, they say very little. They deflect, they dismiss, or they simply attack you. you they attack your motives. We have to bring in all the examples, but they will do just that. But the real reason is because they don't have knowledge. I believe that sometimes they are afraid because they really don't know how to respond. They really don't know what they're talking about. They can't go toe-to-toe with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they attack you and they mock you. 
And of course, this very thing would be what befell Jerusalem, that these enemies of the cross would be chased down by the Roman army and put down. As Paul says to the Galatians, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked for whatever a man sows, that which he will also reap. You reap what you sow. You sow to destruction, you sow to the flesh, you will reap the destruction commensurate with that ungodly activity. Can't claim ignorance in this case. Listen to what Psalm 92 says, How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. You remember that, friends, that even though those who deny the gospel for now seem to have the upper hand, there was a time when these Judaizers seemed to have the upper hand, and then without warning, they were destroyed. They were judged. Got a little bit of time. Okay. Let's look at verse 13. Get through that, and that should settle us for the day. Suffering, so uh, see, they, they, those creatures will also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. So we can, we can close on, on this part of the verse. So what they end up doing, they suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. So this is simply Peter repeating this principle of sowing and reaping. They have done wrong to the church. What, are the, what is their payment? What is their just payment? Well, they will suffer wrong also. When they think they are in the right. Listen to Isaiah 3, 11 through 12. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly with him. For what he deserves will be done to him. O oh, my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. Right? Of course there's confusion. Things which Scripture clearly says ought not be done within the household of God are done done so brazenly, listen to this, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. There is a, there is a shamelessness that punctuates their activity. It's as, if it's as if at some point they realize, yeah, you know what? I am the poser. I'm a fake. I'm a phony. But look at the influence I have. Might as well just go with it. I might as well, if I'm going to fall to things that Scripture counts as sin, I might as well do it. These people in here have been deceived so much, they accept me as my leader, I can get away with this. That's why false teachers, who have, often who have huge followings, you will look at their life and it is rife with sexual immorality. They use this as occasion, they use their fame and influence as occasion to take advantage of people. They revel in the daytime. I mean, you shouldn't revel in the nighttime either, unless your reveling is by faith in a godly manner and you're with your Christian bros. Okay, there's that. But by and large, reveling is cast in a negative light. It's a pagan form of partying, right? even while claiming to be pious and spiritual and righteous. But I think this word day is very, is very important. They revel in the daytime. Why? Because they think the day will never come. Right? What's in view here? The day of God, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. So when Peter says they revel in the daytime, it's, they do this because, ah, it's not going to happen. This day you speak of is never going to come upon me. It's never going to take me by surprise. So I can keep living the way I'm living. I can keep partying it up, living in a shameless manner, taking advantage of the flock of God where people will receive me. Shameful, shameful behavior. And yet, this is what they do. Look at this. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions, same word, as they carouse with you. Okay, look at that. Keeps going, keeps going. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions, they carouse with you. This is a sacrificial term, right? Animals were supposed to be without blemish and spot. We as the church of God, by word of Ephesians 5.27, are to be presented in all our glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that we would be holy and blameless, right? We look to Jesus Christ, the Lamb without blemish, without spot, right? So that in Him we may stand justified. So these leaders which should lead the church in being living sacrifices are themselves stains and blemishes, ones that are hard to get out, 
You've had those stains on your, your clothes before, whether it's like wine or grape juice. Banana is notoriously hard to get off clothing. There's certain things that just stain and you can't get them out no matter how hard you scrub. Same difficulty lies within the presence of false teachers. They are stains. They are blemishes. And as long as they remain in the church, they will corrupt this living sacrificial worship that the church is to offer to the living God as a fragrant offering. But rather than a fragrant offering, this living sacrifice will reek of a burning trash heap. That's why Peter tells us later on in this book, chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. What things? This judgment coming. Be diligent to be found spotless and blameless at peace. Don't revel. Right? Resist the chaos of these false teachers. Be at peace. Shalom. Rest be found as one who is resting in Christ. Stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, like the hook, right? We, as, as Christ's disciples, we are to be fishers of men, right? So this, per, this same imagery is being used of false teachers, but they're perverting it. They are, this word deception is, it pictures a hook. They are doing the same thing. They are also trying to be fishers of men, but to lead them astray, as they carouse with you. We'll close definitively, I promise, with this one. They carouse with you. This word carousing isn't so much speaking of, you know, what we think of as carousing, like you're at some low-life dive, you know, (laughs) down in the city somewhere. This is actually speaking of the love feast, right? The fellowship meal. They spend time with you. And yet, as Jude describes them, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. So, of course, he's describing them what they are, and yet they're hidden reefs. Reefs are beautiful. You ever seen coral reefs? Especially in clear blue water, it's amazing. They're gorgeous. But you rub up against them, they will cut you like a knife. They're dangerous. Though they may not look like it initially. It's interesting here, there seems to be a play on, a play on words that this, uh, looking at here, they are stains and blemishes reveling in their deception as they, as they carouse with you. In the Jude passage, this love feast is agapes, and then it changes here with Peter's use of apates. There's a play on words in which the love feast ends up being an environment where they work their deception. See, this is this is treachery of the gravest degree. In Psalm 41.9, we read of a passage that foretells of the very act of Judas against Christ, right? The one that is breaking bread against me, has lifted up his heel against me, right? My friend, the one I trusted. See, this is the thing that false teachers do. They will try to, they will try to gain your trust. They will speak smooth words to you, but then in the next breath betray you in order to lead you astray and take advantage of you, rather than being a minister of Christ and His gospel, to be an instrument of grace and humble service to you. And that's what we want to be on guard against. And, you know, we don't want to stop suddenly from a great text, but I think we can continue uh, this next Lord's Day. But think, keep, of these, keep these descriptions in mind, right? And think of how they're opposite, right? They're in, in their pure form are, are woven so beautifully in the gospel message. Where instead of corruption, we see Christ bring all of His purity to bear in our lives. That rather than being animals, Christ is the perfect man, the perfect master. Think about the, these teachers who have no knowledge in the gospel we receive all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See how that works? All these men do is seek to pervert these blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus and in His gospel. And take our attention away from Him. So remember that. That the goodness that Christ brings to bear in His church is the good news of His kingdom. It's the good news of Christ Himself. A message that will strengthen us, purify us, and help us to rely on His all-sufficient grace. So rather than being pulled aside by these false teachers who only lead you to ruin, may we recommit ourselves again to rest in the one who makes us a new creation in him and presents us without spot or blemish 
before the Father. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love and goodness to us. We, even though we go through a passage that has quite a bit of shocking moments in terms of the depth of depravity that these false teachers will, uh, to which they will sink, we know that we have a risen Savior who will preserve us through it. Um, help us, Lord, to, even in a passage like this, refresh ourselves at the fountain of living waters to see your truth, to see your gospel, to see your amazing grace um, at work in our hearts. Uh, help us, Lord, to continue to purify ourselves from corruption as your Spirit works in our midst, that we would not fall prey to false teachers, false teaching. Lord, I even pray specifically for, for Jeremy and myself as we, um, as we serve this body, that we would do so courageously, confidently, but with, with a measured humility where we are able to cast our cares on you to gain strength for every good work because you provide it, that we would never go so far as to exalt ourselves uh, within this body, but we would only lead this church to exalt you. That is our desire. That is truly our desire. So guard our hearts from that. Guard us from pride. Um, even guard us from, guard us from hurt feelings, <laughs> guard us from self-condemnation so we don't react in a sinful way to draw attention to ourselves. Lord, may the Word continue to proliferate here, may it continue to be taught faithfully, and may it continue to be understood clearly, so we may grow in our knowledge of You. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.